Escape Pod 145 February 14th, 2008 Today's story, Instead of Loving Heart, by Jeremiah Tolbert Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. We have a very retro story for you today. One that could easily be science fiction from a very different era. This isn't the first story I've seen like this, and it's really interesting to me how, more and more, writers of speculative fiction, particularly in an adventure mold, seem to be looking to the past. It's not a new idea. Steampunk has been a literary movement for over 20 years, though it continues to gain popularity. You also have turn-of-the-century SF and fantasy, like Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and 30s and 40s pulp-era adventure, such as Indiana Jones and Hellboy, and Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. It feels to me like pop culture is going nostalgic in a very big way. If I was pressured to speculate on why, and this intro's not long enough yet, so I guess I am, I guess it has a lot to do with dramatic impact. When you set a story in the future, or in another world, you have to give the audience all the hooks into the setting. They don't know what's good and bad, or what's important and what's trivial, until you tell them by having your characters react to their world. And to make an audience that's still figuring things out emotionally respond to that world takes some serious skill. It can be very rewarding, but you're working from a blank slate. On the other hand, the recent past is understood by everyone. Maybe not well understood, or accurately understood, but if you tell a random literate Westerner, Victorian London, they're going to get a clear mental image. Particular fashions, and manners, and dark foggy streets. Say World War I, and everyone's image of trenches and mud and barbed wire is, if not exactly the same, at least similar enough to work from. This is a great shortcut when you don't want to slow down your plot pacing. And because we tend to view the past more vividly and romantically than we view the present, it's easy to make things seem larger than life. An alien race is only evil if you tell us, but if your story has Nazis in it, well, you don't have to work to prove it to us. Everyone knows about Nazis. Or at least we think we do. And that brings us to this week's story. We're pleased to present Instead of a Loving Heart by Jeremiah Tolbert, I know the title sounds like a Valentine's Day story, but that's pure coincidence. Mr. Tolbert lives in Colorado, where he practices web design, photography, and some excellent writing. He was also the co-editor of the late and highly respected webzine, The Fortean Bureau. This story first appeared in the anthology All-Star Zeppelin Adventure Stories, which is, by the way, one of the three coolest ideas for an anthology I've ever heard of. The story is read for us by Jared Axelrod of the Voice of Free Planet X and Aliens You Will Meet podcasts. Jared's also a talented artist with some steampunk sensibilities of his own. I have on my keychain a beautiful working sonic screwdriver that he built for me with brass and black trim. You can see similar commissions that he's done for people at jaredaxelrod.com. So turn on your listening devices and calibrate your pressure sensors. It's story time. Instead of a Loving Heart by Jeremiah Tolbert I hate it here. It is too cold for my motors, and it never stops snowing. But Dr. Octavio says that the weather is conductive to his experiments. I'm still not certain that what he is working on isn't meant to replace me. He tells me impatiently that it isn't, 
but I live in constant fear of it. I have nightmares that he will withhold the fuel that is my sustenance, that my parts will run slowly down until they can no longer nourish my brain, while the rest of me turns into red dust. No oil would bring me back. It is a terrible sort of death, one that I could not sit back and watch unfold in gruesome detail. I want to go quickly when the time comes. We are somewhere among the tallest mountains of the world. When we arrived, I was locked away in a cargo hold, so I don't know exactly where. Our home is a small, drafty castle and a separate laboratory. Dr. Octavio had the locals construct the lab before he tested the new death ray on their village. There's very little left there. In my little bit of spare time, I try to bury the bodies and collect anything useful to the doctor's experiment. My primary duties consist of keeping the castle's furnace running and clearing the never-ending snow from the path between the two buildings. Sometimes, it falls too fast for my slow treads and shovel attachment to keep up with, and I find myself half-buried in snow. It is horrible on my gears when this happens, but I use heavyweight oil now, and it helps. It is one of the few benefits of my metal frame that I appreciate. Life in this contraption is like being wrapped in swaddling clothes. I wonder if I could feel anything if my casing caught on fire. I need to ask the doctor when he isn't in one of his moods. I am plowing fresh snow from the path when the wind begins to blow harder than usual. I swivel my cameras and spot Lucinda's flying machine landing on the rocky field behind the castle. Dr. Octavio calls it a heliocopter. It is the perfect transportation for a jewel thief of her skill, painted black with stylized diamonds on the sides. She calls it the kingfisher because it can hover above her prey. It is faster and more agile than the zeppelin, her previous method of transportation. I feel a twinge of happiness that she has caught up with us, even though it'll send the doctor into a fit of anger. Before the protectorate destroyed our previous laboratory, they argued and she left without telling me goodbye. Dr. Octavio grumbled the next day about money. Often, Lucinda became stingy and demanded unreasonable results, so said the doctor. Dr. Octavio assembled his new fortress on a very tight budget. We have no automated machine gun turrets or shock troops. We do not even have rabid yetis to protect the compound. There is only me and my flamethrower attachment against whatever is out there. The death ray broke down due to the cold. I roll up the path as fast as my treads let me. Lucinda climbs out of the kingfisher, wrapped in a scarlet cloak, her trademark color. Her raven hair is braided into a ponytail that flails in the wind like a dangerous snake. When she sees me, she smiles. I examine myself for a reaction. I cannot find one. I have no heart like the tin woodsman from the Baum books I read as a child. Only he was lucky enough to lose his body a piece at a time. Zed, what are you doing out in the cold? She says. She uses the name Octavio gave me. Zed-03. I try not to imagine what it was like for my predecessors. I must keep the path clear of snow for the doctor, I answer in my monotone, mechanical voice. 
I hated as nearly as much as the loss of my hands. I once prided myself on my ability to tell jokes. Now even the funniest punchline falls flat. I saw you land. Come into the castle where it is warm. She shakes her head. I need to see father immediately. He left me with orders that he is not to be disturbed. Her smile fades. I cannot disobey Dr. Octavio's orders. She knows this. My body inflicts unbearable pain when I do. <sighs> Fine, then. Lead the way. I plow a path around the castle to the service entrance into the kitchen and allow Lucinda inside while I swap my shovel attachment for my manipulators. They have pressure sensors. Inside the kitchen, I put a kettle on the stove while Lucinda warms herself beside the radiator. The tea will be ready in a few minutes, I say. She has an answer, and I turn to see what has captured her attention. She has uncovered my easel and is looking at the latest of my failures. Hmm? Uh, that, that'll be fine, Zed. She takes a seat at the small table in the corner. I recover the painting and roll to be opposite her. She reaches out and holds one of my manipulators in her hand. Six PSI. Six PSI. What's his mind like these days? She looks at me when she speaks, unlike the doctor. It's fine, Dr. Octavio says. I hadn't noticed the gust of cold air. How could I? What are you doing in here? He points at me. You're my servant, not hers. Get out there. I nearly broke my back on the ice, you useless heap of scrap. When I see the doctor, I see him in his youthful prime. He has designed me that way. Where his aged voice comes from, I see a stretched out man with fidgeting hands and fevered blue eyes. I know he must be decrepit by now. I do not know exactly how old he is, but he rants about the American Civil War as if he was there. Lucinda gives me an apologetic look, and I roll outside, but stop on the opposite side of the door. I extend my microphone and maximize the gain. I saw the village, Lucinda shouts, or what's left of it anyway. So you're a mass murderer now? What did those people ever do to you? They knew too much, Dr. Octavio says, raising his voice to match hers. The Protectorate found me too easily last time. No one must know that we are here. But you didn't worry. The death ray failed to function afterwards. He grumbled, sounding like a child with a broken toy. Thank God for small miracles, she says. I want to inspect the weapon to make sure you're not lying again, Father. It is quiet for a moment, and I fear I might have made a sound. No one comes to the door. Finally, Lucinda continues. What are you working on now? I don't have to tell you that, Dr. Octavio nearly shrieks. It's not a weapon, if that's what you want to know. It had better not. The Germans are looking for weapons, and if I find out you have been dealing with them, you will learn the true meaning of poverty. If I could shudder, I would at the tone of Lucinda's voice. She can become as cold as this mountaintop when dealing with the subject of money. They argue about the money for an hour. And then the subject turns to Lucinda's latest heist, so I hurry away to the path. I still sleep, much to the doctor's dismay. Sleep is a requirement of the mind as well as the body. Mostly I have nightmares, but sometimes I have a real dream. 
I dream that I still have hands that can paint, that can sculpt, that can play the piano. In the dream, I have six arms, and I do it all at once. When I drift awake, there are only the manipulators reporting pressure. Zero PSI. Zero PSI. Lucinda left in the evening, and Dr. Octavio retired to his chambers. My internal clock tells me that it is 6 a.m., and I must wake the doctor. I take the crude elevator that he has rigged to allow me access to all the floors. His bedroom chamber is dark and baroque, full of intricately carved furniture. The set was a gift from Lucinda last Christmas, and somehow he managed to retrieve it from our previous fortress in the South Pacific. Dr. Octavio, it is a new day, I say tonelessly. He groans and rolls out of bed, apparently a well-muscled man in his mid-twenties, well-endowed. He shovels into the bathroom and waves me away. Go clean or something, Zed. I obey. Once, Lucinda asked Dr. Octavio why he chose me, an unknown painter, to be the brain of his servant machine. His replies burned into my mind. Because he is an artist. Art serves no purpose but to distract. How does it improve the lives of men? Science is ultimately the true path of all men, even artists like him. Unfortunately, he is stubborn. Dr. Octavio kidnapped me from my Paris studio, removed the brain from my body, and implanted it in a machine to prove a philosophical point to no one in particular. That is how the man's mind works. Zed, I need your assistance in the laboratory, he says to me from the doorway. His words hang in the air amidst the fog of his breath. How long has it been since he last asked me to assist him? I turn from my shoveling and join him inside the laboratory. I wait for my lenses to clear. When they do, I see his latest experiment. Rows and rows of vacuum tubes, connected with haphazard wiring, line the walls, connected to more arcane machinery that I have no words to describe. Some of the machinery resembles parts of me, especially a manipulating arm that resembles mine but significantly more advanced. I feel a deep pang of greed at the sight of it. The emotion surprises me, and I relish the sensation. What is your bidding, Dr. Octavio? I ask. He motions to the arm. I need you to interface with this. Come over here. Dr. Octavio attaches me to the arm, and I flex it, checking the wiring. It seems good. It relays seven decimal pressures to my brain, far more sensitive than my own manipulators. What would you like me to do with it? He shrugs, his attention already turning to the workbench, crisscross with wiring. I don't care. Give it a thorough testing for range of motion and dexterity. Can I retrieve a few things? I ask. Fine, but don't be long. I have other tasks to attend to, he barks. I collect my easel and paints from the kitchen and bring them to the laboratory. Dr. Octavio patiently hooks me to the arm again, and I take up my brush. An hour later, I want to weep. I haven't been able to achieve this level of technique since Paris. I call for the doctor to inspect my work. He picks up the canvas and examines it passionlessly. He walks to the furnace and throws it inside the burner. 
The quality of the arm is sufficient. You may go. It is spring when Lucinda returns. The snow has turned into freezing rain, and I've been using my flamethrower to clear ice from the path for a week. I clean the path before sunrise because I cannot sleep. After the doctor caught me using the arm late one night, he has kept the lab padlocked. He shattered the sculpture with a sledgehammer. Lucinda's heliocopter lands quietly, and I watch as she leads several gray-uniformed men to the laboratory. They make short work of the lock, and I hear them breaking things inside the lab. Several minutes later, they leave with armfuls of equipment. Lucinda walks down the path to me. I'm sorry to do this to you, Zed, she says, and I can see that her face is bruised. I owe money to some people. She stares at the castle for a moment and then curses. I'm sorry I'm leaving you here with him. One day, I'll be back for you. Will you be all right? I ask. She forces a smile, and I almost believe her when she says yes. There's a war breaking out in Europe. The Germans have taken Poland. It'll be a good time for someone in my profession. The men come out of the heliocopter and shout down at us in German. They have guns. Lucinda walks back to the heliocopter, slipping only a little. She waves at me from the cockpit when the kingfisher takes off. Failed projects, Dr. Octavio says when he inspects the damage. All junk. They damage my masterpiece, but it'll only take a week to get it back up to speed. He grins and rubs his hands together. He enjoys a good setback. They give him an opportunity to refine work that his manic brain could not otherwise. What is this project? I ask. Why should I tell you? He says and squints at me. I'm not going to let you use the arm again. You'll waste its potential on worthless doodles. Will it replace me? I ask. The doctor muses for a moment. I think in the end, it will replace all of us. What is it? He grins again. It is my greatest invention, a machine that will be smarter than me, a thinking machine, capable of creating machines more intelligent than itself. How can you create a machine that is smarter than yourself? Isn't that a paradox? I ask. Dr. Octavio laughs. No, it's not, but it's a good question. To create a mind smarter than my own, I only have to improve upon my design and give it a desire to further improve upon itself. By eliminating the flaws in my own mind, it'll be superior. And then from its heightened perspective, it will analyze itself and continue to improve, all much faster at thinking than even the human adding machine. He taps his head. It will be the supreme intellect, my ultimate achievement and the ultimate achievement of science. So the arm is for creating, I ask, fear growing in me. I can sense my brain sending signals to a non-existent body. Run, do something. The body does not obey these primitive signals. It will create others in its own image. I expect humanity will become extinct in a century at the most, he says. I have more vacuum tubes being airdropped this afternoon. Go and wait for them, and bring them straight to me when they arrive. I obey. There is no doubt in my mind that these machines will have no use for me. 
They will create themselves to be capable of serving all their needs. They won't need assistance, nor will they need artists. I roll down the unused road to the old village, keeping an eye on the sky for the airdrop. I maximize the gain on my microphone, listening for the hiss of radio static. I wake from my nightmares to the sound of explosions. The castle shudders beneath me. Outside, it is raining in the darkness. There are voices inside the castle, speaking in British accents. I can hear Dr. Octavio calling for me above it all. He's using a radio commander. Come quickly! Kill all who stand in your way! I attach my flamethrower as quickly as my manipulators allow, and then roll into the hallway. British commandos spill through the break in the wall. They ignite like cheap wax candles and flail around uselessly. I press past them towards the elevator. Dr. Octavio has fallen silent, and I expect he has been captured. When I arrive at the highest floor of the castle, a commando opens fire with a machine gun. Bullets ricochet from my armor plating and kill him. Alan Stone, leader of the Protectorate, has Dr. Octavio handcuffed to a chair. Tell us what the super weapon is, Octavio! What super weapon? the doctor asks. His eyes search around him wildly. Blood trickles from a cut on his upper lip. He sees me. Zed, tell them I am not making a weapon. I roll from the shadows. Stone and his men train their weapons on me. I can barely make out the words, It is in the laboratory. My mechanical voice shuts down. As my body shuts itself down, piece by piece, the world seems to speed up. Dr. Octavio lurches forward in his chair, roaring. One of the commandos spins and pulls the trigger. The gunshot deafens me, overriding all sound from my microphone. Destroy everything down there, Stone says into his radio. My microphone shuts down. Then the cameras. I am in darkness. It starts as a buzzing sound, someone speaking to me. My cameras come back online and focus sluggishly. Can you hear me now? Stone asks the balding technician. The technician nods and backs away. Stone, I say. Good. It's time to leave, Stone says, cigar clenched between his teeth. We stand in the open field beneath the zeppelin. The laboratory billows smoke below us. Nothing will have escaped the fire. I'm waiting for someone, I say. He looks away uncomfortably. That wouldn't be Octavio's daughter, would it? Famous jewel thief Lucinda Octavio, a.k.a. The Ghost? Yes, I say. I feel something familiar rising from the depths of my reptilian brain. Fear. I've almost missed you. I guess you've no way of knowing living out here. His voice trails off. I stare at him. If he doesn't say something soon, I will set ablaze with the remaining fuel in my thrower. She's been captured by the Nazis. He pauses, considering his words. He stares at me with perplexed expression when I recognize as the result of him searching me for outward signs of emotion. I feel sorry for him. Seems she tried to steal from Hitler's private stash. They've been trumpeting it on the papers and on the radio. Truth is, we've been afraid she would lead them to Octavio. That's why we moved so quickly when you radioed us. I tried to pretend that I don't feel anything, that I do not have a heart. Look, mate, 
Stone says. Come with us and you can make a difference in this topsy-turvy world. I can't promise you anything, but maybe you can rescue her. British intelligence has a lot of questions for her. What do you say, Zed? My name is not Zed, I say. But yes, I will come with you. What's your name, then? Call me Tin Man. Stone shrugs and walks up the ramp to the gondola hanging a few feet above the ground. I turn my cameras and watch the smoke from the laboratory for a few more minutes until I can be sure that I will never doubt that every last bit of Octavio's last experiment is gone. And that was our story. This was one of those for me where I really wanted to know what happens next. I'll keep waiting for the series, in film or comic book form. Okay, feedback for episode 141, Paul E. Martens' time travel speculation story, The Color of a Brontosaurus. This one was somewhat controversial. Commenters either really enjoyed it for its style and sentiment, or took it apart for logical inconsistencies. High Five and Russell both called it a bubblegum story. Mr. Tweedy praised it for its portrayal of scientists as human, with flaws and biases. Several others found it predictable, or found some of the science rather thin. There was also some immediate and highly literate dissection of the use of the word brontosaurus, which has been deprecated by the scientific community for a hundred years now. I love it when I learn something new from the podcast community. The quote of the week, however, has to be Quince's summary of the story, which I'll recite in full. First half. The bone must be X because I say it is. That's crazy. It must be Y. You're both insane. It is clearly Z. Hulk smash! Second half. I love you, but I love dinosaurs. I'm pregnant. And they lived happily ever after. The following week was Escape Pod 142, Tim Pratt's story about world-saving heroes and aboard AI, artifice and intelligence. The feedback on this one was very consistent. Almost everyone agreed that the story was way too short. As Wakela said, fun but didn't really stick to my ribs. Void Munashal said, interesting premise, interesting characters, and finally once everything is set up and all of the players are together, the end. There were disagreements. Clint Memo believed if the story were longer, it would have felt more drawn out and less funny. Quote, I think this is a great example of the adage, always leave them wanting more. But my favorite comment for this week was a compliment from Aranya. She said, Steve Ely doing around 5 billion characters for the same story. What more could a girl ask for, other than a working time machine? Thanks, Aranya. I have to agree. If I had a working time machine, I'd have the girl. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. You can share it all you like, but don't sell it or change it. If you liked it, please tell a friend or blog about us, and if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. It is how we pay our authors and keep this podcast going every week. You can also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and buy collectible CDs and DVDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, and you can find them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Marshall McLuhan, who said... We are all robots when uncritically involved with our technologies. We'll see you next week. 
Happy Valentine's Day, if it is a happy Valentine's Day. Either way, have fun. <laughs>